Amen. That's not a bad message to live by, is it? You know, uh, when we see how short this life is compared to how long the next life is, it makes sense to live our life and say, I'm going to do the things in this short life that count in the next life that go for eternity. That's how I'm going to live my life. That's what uh, is my philosophy of life. What counts in the next life is what I want it to count in this life. There's been a, a lot of you who have lived that way selflessly, giving of yourself here at Grace Point for decades. And uh, you've been a part of God shaping the story here at Grace Point. And uh, if you've been around here very long, you know that worshiping on Sunday is awesome, but that's only part of what it means to be a part of Grace Point. If you haven't found your place to serve, if you haven't found your outlet in ministry, I want you to mark your calendar for August 19th. Uh, as we have the Ministry Expo, it's going to expose you to all kinds of opportunities where you could give of yourself, not just in receiving in worship, but give of yourself in ministry and service. Be praying about that. Join us on August 19th. Well, as we continue this morning in uh, our series entitled Revolutionary Love, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles here today, um, I want you to know you're going to need them. If you don't have your Bibles here today, go, oh, I should have brought it. You're going to need one, and so cuddle up close to somebody and look on theirs. Uh, open up your phone, whatever you need to, pull out God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew 5 in just a few moments. We saw last week as we uh, began this series, Revolutionary Love. Understanding that a revolution, it's a game changer. It, it comes in and it makes something completely different. It's not just an add-on. It's not just some kind of aftermarket thing. This marks time and changes everything. And revolutionary love that we saw last week, this love that God has for us that goes farther than what we could ever imagine is inside out, upside down. It's backwards compared to what the world would have us think. I mean, when you think of a revolution, rarely do you think about love. And rarely would you think about it the way that Jesus gave himself in love. We saw four pictures last week. How far would God go to love us? When he sent us his son Jesus, he did downright ungodly things to get to you. Remember the picture of a God who made himself rejectable, standing at the door, knocking, wanting to come in. Even the people in his hometown didn't recognize him, didn't see him as God had placed him as the Messiah. He was also the one who chose to ride in on a donkey. He chose the symbol of servanthood, humility over power and authority. He's the God who got on his knees and began to wash feet, and he began to lead a revolution of love in a way that would serve his disciples and those around him. Finally, ultimately giving his life on the cross, dying for us. We had to take a look at setting the scene of this revolutionary love before we could get to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. We're diving into that today. I mean, that's hard to beat. You came to church today to hear the greatest sermon ever preached. That's pretty good. So uh, to stay true to that today, none of this is my stuff. Uh, you know, th there's a place to be original. There's a place to find some uh, creativity. There's very little creativity. There's very little originality in this. I don't want to get too far off the outline of the greatest sermon ever preached. 
So as we look at that, let's dive right in to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It's setting the scene of this sermon that we're going to study for the next number of weeks together. And we need to see the setting of this scene. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began teaching them. And it goes on with what he was saying. If you write in your Bible, you might want to underline the word crowds. Now when he saw the crowds, this is like at the beginning of the movie that you watch, and it has the uh, subtitles there that are setting the scene. It tells you the date, the time, the location. And my favorite part at the beginning, it says, based on a true story. I don't know about you, but a movie is always better when it's a true story. I don't even care if they say based on it. If I can begin to think that there's reality in this, now, now you've got my attention. This is a real-life, true account of what Jesus is teaching, and the crowds are gathering. But read on. He went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. The setting we have here is his disciples, no doubt the close ones to him, and then the followers to him, close enough that he could sit down, and he began to teach. Now, there's many people looking on. You have the Pharisees who are watching, the religious leaders, who are just keeping tabs to see what's happening in this area. You have those who are just kind of emotionally stirred, or they just kind of heard about him, and they didn't have any plans for the afternoon, so I'm going to go catch the visiting teacher to hear what he has to say. But then you have those up close who are his followers, his disciples, and Jesus is focusing in on them. Jesus' target audience is his followers. Jesus gives these fundamental instructions on how to be his true disciples. So we're setting the stage. Jesus is gathering around his disciples, and his target audience is his followers. And then Jesus gives these fundamental instructions on how to be his true disciples. I don't know if uh, you've seen the movie Hoosiers or not. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about movies. But I'm going to do it real quick and then get back to Jesus' outline. But Jesus has started to talk about fundamentals. and, And I love this movie Hoosiers. When the coach comes in, he's the new coach in a small town, hadn't proved himself, and he's decided to run practice. And he's got all kinds of people sitting in the stands watching to see how he runs practice, to see if he can make the cut. And he sets up some folding chairs, and he decides to run these basketball players through some drills, and the onlooking parents are not too pleased because we're about scoring here. We need to shoot and work on the three-pointers. We need to work on what it means to be a great score on the basketball team and he says no that's not how we're going to do things with that vision of great coaching in mind last night i went into the backyard as caden was counting down the hours to upward soccer and i thought gene hackman has got a few things for me to coach my daughter and so uh, we went in the backyard and i've decided to teach her the fundamentals of soccer of how to plant your foot and how to strike the ball and how to pass and how to dribble and look up and all these things that are exciting to me because i know if you have the fundamentals everything else begins to fall in place and kaden quickly said dad uh, before we do that uh when we have upward soccer will will there be people watching us i said well i think there may be okay dad will we get water breaks whenever we want them At this point, it's interrupting my wonderful motivational speech of how to be a great soccer player. I quickly saw that Caden, like many of us, had very little interest in fundamentals. She wanted to see the crowds that were there. She wanted to know if she's going to have water whenever she uh, could get to it. And she wanted to know what color her jersey was, and I still don't know what that is. 
Jesus is now sitting with hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people around him. And now they are ready to hear from the master. I can imagine these followers, these disciples who are pressing in closer going, this is going to be good. They're going to see why we follow Jesus. It's going to be awesome. He's going to teach us. It's going to be great. And he starts with these fundamentals. I can just see their eyes go, oh, Jesus, this is not your best one. Pull out your good sermon. Pull out the good teaching. What are you talking about? And Jesus here, at the greatest sermon ever preached, he starts out and he says, you have to have these fundamentals. So in rapid fire this morning, we're going to walk through these fundamentals. He says, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, this is where you start. Jesus started with the heart. Verse 3 through 5, we see how he is starting with the heart. Now before we read Jesus' words and what he's giving these fundamentals, it's important for us to contrast this with what the world would say to us. Some fundamentals from the world, some key nuggets of truth would say something like this. Blessed are the spiritually self-sufficient, for theirs is the kingdom of here and now. We're faced with all kinds of stories today when we're watching the Olympics and how people have worked hard and you, and you get this sense of you can have whatever you want if you just work hard enough. If you want it bad enough, you'll get it. And the world tells us, hey, the kingdom of here and now is available to those who just want it bad enough. If you're self-sufficient, learn to do it on your own, you're going to make it. Jesus opens his mouth. And he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, Jesus. Uh, you know, Son of God, you're the Messiah, but can you, can you get to the good stuff? Jesus starts with this heart thing first, and this is a picture of spiritual poverty. A poor person doesn't celebrate and not having any money. They recognize how it cripples them with money. And Jesus isn't talking about physical poverty. It's spiritual poverty. Jesus is beginning to paint the picture of why they should focus on how little they have. This uh, original language for the word blessed is a little bit aggravating to me, to be honest. It's translated, and we still keep coming back to the word happy. We've learned the great church phrase that, you know, joy is based in something beyond circumstance but happiness is is what happens but it's still happy happy are those who are poor in spirit well why should i be happy in the circumstance that i'm poor in spirit jesus unpacks this and he helps us see that when we know how spiritually bankrupt we are that's a good place to start you want to be my disciple you need to experience being poor in spirit Knowing how little you have, how bankrupt you are, how completely dependent you are in God. But that didn't sell very many download sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. They, they weren't chanting and raving encore at that point. They just kind of excused it as some kind of a hiccup to the beginning of his sermon. Jesus continues, and I can just see the question come out. How is your heart? 
Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That question comes to us today. How is your heart? Are you desperate for God? Do you recognize how spiritually bankrupt you are? Well, I was once upon a time, but my uh, account's doing pretty good today. I've kind of achieved some things. I've gotten somewhere. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know how dependent they are on God, how desperate they are for God. How desperate are you this morning for God? Jesus goes on to another bell ringer. Before we can hear verse 4, the word world would say, Blessed are those who deny the tragedy of their sinfulness, for they will be pleasantly distracted. It's the bliss of just ignoring the problem. It's the art of procrastination to the nth degree. I'm not going to worry about that now. I can worry about it later. Many have adopted this in the Western way of life, that relaxation and joy and fun is just to put your sorrows to the side and just enjoy the moment. Is that what Jesus said? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The person who recognizes the weight of their sin, their spiritual bankruptcy, is one who will be comforted. The very beginning of getting this whole revolutionary love thing right is to understand that I am bankrupt and I can mourn how awful I am and how good God is. <sighs> Pastor Brady, you're doing okay. You had three weeks under your belt. I kind of liked it, but this just stinks. I don't, this is not what I wanted to hear this morning. You're in good company because the disciples weren't so sure they wanted to hear it either. But Jesus says, this is my revolutionary love that changes everything. Last week we looked at the arrow, the love of God that comes down and totally messes up our life for him. And then he begins to help us love him back. But something happens to us, church. We get this up and down relationship with God and then we freeze. But he's calling us to live a life when God's love is shed abroad in our heart. When we're living as holy people, it should ooze out of every pore of our being. And everyone around us should know us for the love of God in us. But why doesn't it happen? Jesus says, listen to my fundamentals. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. How is your heart today? Not only is the good question, is your heart desperate for God? Is your heart broken before God? Is your heart broken before God where you say, God, I need you more than anything else. And when I see myself more clearly, I am broken before you. One of my mentors, she's in heaven now, Mrs. Taylor, I remember talking to her and, and she told me she read two books a day. There's nothing more discouraging than someone who just reads two books a day and you know they have it memorized. I was feeling pretty good on like two, three books a month. And I said, Mrs. Taylor, I said, I said Gertrude, what... What is it that Jesus is teaching you? I thought, I'm, I'm going to get in on this because she's read a book two a day. And she said, Brady, the more I see God, the more I see how he sees me. And I'm thinking, that's got to be pretty good. She goes, and it breaks my heart. And all of a sudden, I was extremely discouraged. If Mrs. Taylor could not cut it before God, then I had no hope. And she saw that look in my eye, and she said, Brady, isn't that awesome? And I just said, yeah, and I didn't get it. It wasn't until years later that I saw this passage come before my eyes. This is where comfort comes. When you come before God, you say, I'm bankrupt, God. I have nothing to offer you. I'm broken before you, and he comforts you. See, these fundamentals, they keep adding up together. 
And if you miss the first step, you're going to have trouble with the fifth and sixth step. And Jesus knows this. And he knows that everybody wants that eye candy, that, that ear candy to hear something motivate them. And he says, you want to be my followers. This is how it starts. Jesus continues on in verse 5, where the world would say, blessed are the self-centered, for they will get what they really, really want. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I think in our language we need to have some reminders of what it means to be meek. It doesn't mean that you're kind of mousy. It doesn't mean that you can never stand up for yourself. It doesn't mean that you're a doormat. It is strength under control. Meekness is a humility that you understand any power, any strength, any good thing, it's not really mine. It's not hard to be humble when you know that nothing good comes from you. That's pretty easy to be humble. But when you get confused on where the good comes from, when you get confused on where the power comes from, when you get confused on where the strength comes from, then weird stuff begins to grow in your heart. But blessed are the meek, the ones who have a humbleness about them. Not because it's just fashionable to be humble or it's rude to be haughty. Because they understand they're still bankrupt. They understand they're still broken before God. And now they are beginning to grow as followers. Any strength you have comes from God. How's your heart this morning? Is your heart humbled before God? Third, Jesus calls for a vibrant relationship, not a callous Religion in verse 6. The word will tell us, blessed are those who without ceasing over and over justify themselves, for their efforts will be noted. Jesus says in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You see, the world loves to measure their faith in God to somebody else. Blessed are those who justify themselves over and over and over again. I confess this is a continual problem for me in physical fitness. I have sought out workout partners every place that I've lived with great intentionality of someone who I feel confident I can lift more than they can and I can run more than they can. The problem is that pool of qualified contestants is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But something happens, you feel kind of good about yourself when you go, well, I may only be able to do 14 sit-ups, but they did six. And I feel pretty good. I can't run very far, but at least I made it farther on the treadmill than they did. And, and many of you can testify that that's a very dangerous place to be with your physical fitness. And you pray for me and help me. But how much more tragic is it when spiritually we begin to measure our growth off of somebody else? I justify myself. Well, at least I don't say the things that that person said. At least I don't watch what they watch. At least my attendance chart is better than their attendance chart. At least I still have a little bit of moral pride about myself. And I would never stoop to doing those things. Jesus says, forget that trash. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right living. They will be filled. Where's your hunger and thirst for the things of God? When's the last time you craved the Word of God. When's the last, last time you craved being in His presence? In fact, that's a good question for us today. What is it that you crave? I mean, if you want pizza, you're definitely craving ham and green olive pizza. That's the best there is. 
If, what is it that you, you almost can just taste? It's just, it's so good. When you have it, you got to tell somebody. I went with a friend this week, and I, I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but we had some beef brisket that was roasted for 14 hours. And it was good. And the people I was having lunch with didn't want to hear about it anymore, so I came back to the office and I had to tell everybody I could, have you had this beef brisket? It was awesome. Because I, I began to crave it. I have now marked it in my GPS of how I can get back to this restaurant because I want more. God help us. Now, friend, I don't want to discourage you and beat you up today and go, why don't you want to eat more of God's word? You know what? Go back. How's your heart? Are you understanding how spiritually bankrupt you are today? Are you mourning? Are you broken before God today? Are you desperate for Him? How's your humility before God today? Your meekness? You wonder why you don't crave the things of God. It starts back in these earlier fundamentals. Because when I see that I don't deserve anything, when I see that I'm desperate for God, when I see that I need more of Him in my life, it begins to develop this appetite. But the enemy does this horrible trick to you. He says, if you were a good Christian, like Pastor Brady was talking about on Sunday, you'd read your Bible for 14 hours a day, and you would love it. And you sit down, and you start to read, and you fall asleep. You sit down and you start to pray and you remember that you didn't take out the trash. You, you sit down and you have great intentions and there's no hunger there for right living and you begin to get upset at yourself and you do one of two things. You begin to pretend like it's happening or you begin to come up with your own religion that forces you to do it out of your own strength. And both will kill you. Oh, that's good. That's good stuff. If you didn't know, I'm just telling you that was good. Jesus is putting this in our heart. He's saying, I have a revolution for you. I want you and your community of believers to be known for the, my love that is in you. I want it to pour out of every aspect of your life. And we go, well, how does that happen? I've got to work harder. No, it starts with our heart. What you most, what are, excuse me, you are most likely filled with what you crave. You're filled with what you crave. If you crave Safety, <laughs> you're filled with this sense of fear and trying to be safe. If you crave self-sufficiency, financially, relationally, occupationally, you begin to be filled with this sense of self-sufficiency. If you are craving being dependent on God, being broken before God, being humbled, knowing your strength is not yours, it's God, something begins to happen. But who's going to be watching the game? When is our water break? Jesus says fundamentals. But who's going to watch my good deeds? When do I get my thirst quenched with what I want? Oh, oh that's good. Fourth, Jesus teaches us on our relationship with others. 7 through 12, where the world says to us, Blessed are the merciless, for no mercy will be shown to the weak. The businessman who is applauded for squelching out all of the competition, and that may be cases where that's okay in our business world. But when this model creeps into our life that mercy is for the weak and I don't give mercy to anybody, Jesus says, would you stop it? After you begin to see that there's 
my power in you, after you begin to see that I'm working in you and I begin to fill you with a hunger and thirst for right living, something's going to happen in the way you see people around you. And verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. See, disciples, followers of Christ, must have in their heart a reflection of Christ's heart. I've heard this phrase, and and I, I, I hesitate to speak on it, but I love you enough that I have to. I've heard over and over that this phrase of, well, I'm just not a compassionate person. I'm just not a very gracious person. I don't do well on showing mercy. And, and sometimes we say this in the church circles as just it's not my spiritual gift somewhere. Be very careful, friend. If it's in a tone of confession and you need help with that, then by all means share that. But Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, it has to come out of your heart. I'm not talking about a personality type. I'm not talking about you being something different that God created you. I'm talking about Jesus' love transforming you and you show mercy because of the mercy that you've been given. But here's the problem. We begin out of our own human strength to be good humanitarians and we begin to try to do good works to show mercy to someone. And that does nothing. We begin to say, well, I'm going to feed you this because I want to show mercy on you and I'm going to stop there and it does nothing. What I love about our our, uh, sister institution, Bridge of Grace, is they're going to meet these physical needs in hunger. They're going to meet these needs in education. They're going to meet these needs in recovery. And it's not just placating to a handout. But it's something that's going to change their life. And so what is it in us that desires to give mercy because God's love has told us that? When I do it in my own strength... It comes out as charity. When I do it in my own strength, I'm prideful for what I give in mercy. But when God does it in me, it begins to smell like Jesus. And it's not charity. It's not a handout. It's revolutionary love. That's another sermon. We'll come back. Verse 8. The world tells us, Blessed are those who diversify their portfolios and take into their heart whatever feels good, and they will live the good life. Another motto for the world is everything in moderation. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I'll never forget, it was about seven or eight years ago now, I had a sinus infection, I was homesick, and there's nothing better when you're homesick than a big, huge bowl of frosted flakes. I went to the fridge, and I pulled out of the fridge the milk, and I'm, I'm feeling horrible. And I don't know about you, I'm not good at being sick. If I'm sick, I want everybody to know it. There's no sense of me being sick and you not knowing it, so I want you all to know. No one was at home, so all my whining went to waste. But uh, I'm just feeling horrible. I pour the milk. I have a huge bowl of uh, Frosted Flakes, and I begin to eat the Frosted Flakes. With my sinus infection going on, I can't smell, I can't taste very much, but I know it's Frosted Flakes, and I remember how good they taste, and I consume about half of this massive bowl that's probably four or five servings worth. And then I look down, and I see something that's very disturbing. There is a texture to Frosted Flakes that I don't remember. There are some white chunks all over the top of the Frosted Flakes. And I had consumed half of a bowl of spoiled milk over Frosted Flakes. I couldn't smell it, I couldn't taste it, and I learned a valuable lesson. Be very careful what you eat when you can't smell and you can't taste. You'll begin to take in things that you have no business taking in. 
You begin to do things that are wretched and horrible when you're distracted and, and you can't see it. But here's what the enemy does. He begins to divide your heart. Oh, be a Christian. Follow Jesus. You know what? Be in that holiness camp. That's good. But just don't do it all the time. Just, I mean, come on, be well-rounded. And he gets you distracted and he gets you thinking about something else. And the sickness, the disease, the infection begins to set in your heart. And you're still doing the things that you're supposed to be doing, but your heart is divided. It's not pure. It's not singly focused. And in your distraction, you begin to take in things to your heart that you have no business taking in. Church, how's your heart today? Is it pure? Is it focused on God? Are you seeing the things that come into your life that have no business being in there? A divided heart has no business with God. As we close this morning, verse 9 talks about peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Peacemakers, friends, they're not power brokers. It's not someone who's in charge all the time, but they make peace. Church, if you want to live as royalty, if you want to be called the son or daughter of God, stop worrying about what you get and the power you have of being in charge and start making peace. As Jesus wraps up his sermon, 10 through 12 We're so uplifting. You ready? Look at it with me. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you because you are, when they say false things about you. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friend, If you're truly following Christ, it's going to cost you something. As Jesus wraps up this portion of the introduction of his message, he says, if you do all these things, people will make fun of you. If you do all these things, they will say evil about you. If they do all these things, you will have trouble. And then he had Pastor Edgar come up and play good music, and then people just cheered. It's a revolutionary love. There's only one question. And as we end this morning, I want you just to respond to the question, how is your heart? As we stand together, I'm going to ask Pastor Edgar to lead us in this song. More important than lunch, more important than getting to your class on time, more important than anything else is to answer this question, church. How is your heart? It's not intended to make you feel guilty. It's intended for the power of God, His love to revolutionize your heart. As we sing, you obey God and let God speak to you.